out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the musician, songwriter, producer and sound artist. It is Paul Statham. You, I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry and all the other groovy stuff. He's worked with such people as Dido and co-wrote Here With Me, but he's also part of Pete Murphy's band, The Hundred Men, who recorded such classic singles as Cuts You Up, All Night Long, Indigo Eyes, and has continued to work in music ever since, and he's also a lecturer. Anyway, you're going to find out much more about Paul within this interview. So all I want you to do is sit back, relax, and enjoy the next 60 minutes. After several minutes of casual chat that I edited out, uh, we got down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years. Paul, it's over to you. Me? Uh, well, I'm just a couple of years older than you, so I was um, formed B-movie uh, at school with Steve Hovington and, and Graham, the, the, the drummer. We're still going, actually. We're still we're, we're back together with a, just recorded some new stuff today. I mixed a new song for us today, actually. Um, so my musical awakening would, would be T-Rex, would be, would be early, early Mark Bolan. I was a f- fanatic for him from 11 years old. The minute I, I heard uh, Ride a White Swan, actually. Right, yes. Uh, um, and then, not so much, I was just obsessed only with him. I didn't like the, I, I liked a bit of the glam. I liked the kind, I, I hated the sweet. I didn't get Slade, although I bought Slade Alive, as everybody else did, the live album. But then quick, I quickly, my cousin, a little bit older, had a gramophone and I would sneak in and, and he had Bowie's albums. And um, he had Roxy Music album with the with the two girls, Amanda Lear, I think, on the front. So I was more obsessed with the fact that two semi-naked girls were on the front of this album. So I would periodically steal that album. And I think he had, with Man Who Sold the World, he might have had, and a Slider by, by T-Rex and stuff like that. Maybe it was a Ziggy Stardust album. And I just became immersed in it. Yeah. Became absolute... I became obsessed with with... with the music, the texture of, of Bowie turned me on to texture. Mark Bowie was a really weird one. It's all a bit single on, very guitar-y. But the, when I heard Bowie and then I heard Another Green World when I was 14, it'd be 1975 when it came out, by Brian Eno. And that was the album that flipped me. That was an album that I remember seeing these worlds these kind of alternate worlds that Eno created sonically. And I've read interviews where he, that was his intention. He wanted to create a world that was similar to this or almost lied next to it. There's a very abstract world. And I, I remember almost listening to it and I would make pictures of the textures and I would make images of what I thought each instrument was in colour. I'd make colour charts of albums right. and became obsessed with, with that. And then the punk thing came along and that just, that was it. I lived in a mining, small mining town, so it was a you know parents were getting divorced. It was a horrible time. The seventies weren't nice at all. I didn't find them a very nice. It was quite a violent yes. decade, to be honest. <clears throat> I lived, uh, and the miners and all this, all this sort of stuff. I just caught up in all of that and that small town madness. 
um, we just used to rehearse above a pub and thrash away. Now, it just seemed to be a way out. Yeah. That, kind of, that, that kind of come moved on once we we heard Ultravox, really. Ultravox's first album, um, produced by Eno, actually, uh, and and then Magazine. And the, hype, the weirdest thing was going to see, was going to see Barhouse supported Magazine at the Ajanti Theatre in Derby and being completely freaked out by Peter Murphy. <laughs> he had this sort of body stocking and he was like leering at the audience. I thought, whoa, man. I was fascinated by him, but equally a little bit terrified. And then listening to Magazine came on. They did the light pours out of me. And I think it was the light pours out of me. It was, yeah. And um, then roll forward, you know, 10 years or 12 years. And there I am on stage with Peter Murphy playing the light pours out of me <laughs> to a fucking sold out show somewhere in the middle of the States. And it was just a surreal moment in my mind. I just went, what? And literally the same year, I again went back to see magazine, this time supported by Simple Minds. I became obsessed with Simple Minds' first album. I absolutely loved it. I still gives me a weird feeling when I hear it. This sort of energy of Roxy music and these really weird it's not their it's probably their worst album but life in a day but that actual song life in a day was the first ever keyboard i learned to play the keyboard and uh which shows the, the oldest bit. whatever that was i kind of worked that out and then roll on you know a few years not far from now, I have Jim in this studio, in this little studio here. I'm working with Jim Kerr and I'm going, uh, you know, Peter Murphy magazine, Jim Kerr. It's like, wow. Uh, if I could have gone back and told my younger self, would yeah. I have said anything? Or would I have just said, just keep going? Just keep going. <laughs> just, it might happen. So with being in a mining town, obviously in the, the early 80s, Thatcher got in 79. Then we had that kind of the Falkland War. And, mm. and then we had the miners' strike, which was kind of horrendous. And then, you know, there was the whole Red Wedge and Socialist Workers' Party. So were you kind of getting emotionally sort of caught up in that kind of... Work? Yeah, my house backed onto the actual picket line. So I would come stumbling in from nightclubs at four o'clock in the morning because I moved back home from London about 1982. I've been in London a couple of years with B-Movie because we, we came to London, we signed to London Records fairly quickly and we released Remembrance Day and Nowhere Girl and Marilyn in Dreams which we, we did really and it, we were groomed for success really we thought it was going to happen we supported Duran Duran on their first tour and and then it just impacted we 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 sacked our drummer Graham who was we were all the original line of back together then our keyboard player left and then an endless succession of just, by 1983 it was just awful like a, a of the original band so I just I couldn't afford to stay in London so I ended up moving back to the mining village and you know every morning you'd hear scab the, the, the sound of them throwing bricks at the bus as it went past my house oh my god um, that must have been horrendous yeah and, and I had friends who whose fathers there's a couple of people fathers committed suicide because they broke the, the they broke the um you know, they went into work and, and then in a small village like that, your life is never going to be the same. You're going to be, you're going to be ostracized forever, yeah. as is all your family. So there's a lot of tragedy 
and the, the queue that the kind of like where they go and collect their money their three quid a day was also at the bottom of my street so because my house backed onto the miners welfare so that was sort of their meeting point where they gather in the morning to either brick the boss as it went up the hill to the pit or to collect their soup money you know the three quid a day and my family were all miners my dad was a was a miner back in the day he was an electrician down the pit so i as were well, my uncles and all, all sorts of stuff so I've, I've seen the devastation that that does that village is, is just dead now my mum still lives there um and it's just it's boarded up and it never recovered never really recovered at all <clears throat> and that to me was like interesting that <clears throat> the new romantic i think a lot of working class bands came out the new romantic things and invented this world of a very colorful world for themselves yeah <laughs> because yeah. the 70s were so grim it was it was it wasn't good i remember sort of having this uh we used to have a, and you probably did as well where you'd have have a timetable of the electricity being cut off during the week and yeah you'd have, <laughs> it <was> like, <laughs> oh no it was just such a different world but but but, but it was you know it's fun the music was vibrant I loved the start of the of the. I loved hooking up with Steve at the start of the eighties and him becoming our manager, signing to some bizarre, releasing our indie stuff. It was, it was happy times as well, recording in tiny little studios, seeing us being being interviewed by Sounds and NME and mm. touring America for the first time. And what, was your, and what did your dad? What was your dad's response to your sort of uh, musical? Oh, I hated it. He, he burst into the house and threw me over his car bonnet when I told him I was leaving. Uh, bailing out of school i didn't want a job i was going to be in a band no no not good not good <laughs> God. jesus that must. But that necessitated a, a a very focused state of mind and um he was pretty good actually he came around really quickly he's no. like right i can tell that look if you're going to be in a band you need some gear if you're going to buy gear you need a job if you're not going into school he helped me get a job and he helped me buy a guitar and a proper amp and um you know there's yeah. lots of thievery going on at the time so gear would come and go from various <laughs> places you'd find it in your rehearsal studio by some other ne'er-do-wells it was just a weird time yeah but uh, it came... a, lot of, a lot of bands that i've interviewed from that period i mean because being young at during that early 80s there was kind of a bit of an un the hopelessness you know there was a feeling of like well actually we're not gonna there's nothing for us we've had the 70s the 80s isn't looking much better <laughs> yeah because we either went towards the kind of the mainstream robert uh, oh god trevor horn production you know the spandau ballet and that yeah. world, or you weren't part of that world which always felt a little bit like you're going to be a part of thatcher's children and or you went to the other side which may basically meant there was no future so there was a lot of unemployment and there was all those schemes like the job seekers lounge and enterprise yes my mate who got out of prison set up the job set up a little recording studio in the old pit baths where i was spent many really drunken nights just jamming out and stuff like it was a really mixed up time to be honest i don't it was part fun it was part horrible but but youth youth makes everything you put a youthful spin on everything really when you when you're young you're young you're there was a, a load of great music around you know it was a it was particularly culturally hostile place politically hostile but music wise you know you're coming out of punk and reggae and disco and, and uh, budding electronica and 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 you've got all this kind of people getting very passionate about music yes yeah, so uh, well i realized with most of these indie bands uh, 
there were, and there were so many of them during that period. It was not really much else to do. So I think most people did. Mm. Dove, um, Every know. band had a town. And then when the, 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 punk, the thing with punk, it burned itself out so quickly that people were left scratching their heads like me. It's like that went, came and went, but it left a residue of, of great little indie labels. The do-it-yourself ethos was still in place. Yes. And it, punk pretty much transformed into post-punk quite quickly for me. You, you find Warsaw became Joy Division, you know, every, every, you find that every member of a post-punk band was in a punk band. Yeah. So it was just it was just exciting to get a keyboard player. When we got Rick Holiday into our band, it was suddenly we could we could sound like our heroes, you know. Um, and pretty soon we we did we were signed and we were, we released stuff. And Noah Girl was did well enough, but not well enough to become a hit. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So then, sort of, because there was the post-punk, and then obviously there would have been that electronic new, new romantic phase, and all the Blitz kids that mm -hmm. everybody went to if you felt um, part of the beautiful people. But then there was, like I said, the SWP part, you know, side of life and Red Wedge. <clears throat> so the indie, the indie world sort of suddenly sort of sprouted up. And obviously, when the Smiths appeared in in '83, they definitely felt like a chapter was starting there because we'd had a few bands, like you mentioned. Simple Minds, and they'd been new to Julian Cope and those sort of bands who echo in the bunny man. But then when mm -hmm. Morrissey and Ma appeared in 83, there was like for five years, they were this kind of big chapter. I mean, yeah, you know, that was, was you know, there was you too as well, obviously. But, but there was a, there was there was that whole postcard scene. There's a whole orange juice, Aztec camera, you know, um, that scene. I think a lot of a lot of great things came out of the around the time of the smiths you know the, the being intelligent and political seemed to come out of this early hedonism of the of the new romantics which seemed to be a, a sort of echo of thatcher if you like that the, the kind of the duran duran and spandau ballet in in some essences there was a lot there, there was we're self-made men we have companies you know we're businessmen as well as musicians you know it's, <laughs> it's a really weird sort of the baf british electronic foundation you know setting up themselves as a company and yeah. uh, sort of vast amounts of money being generated um you know international hit records and well as and those, yeah music, i mean there was, there was a, a bit of a spirit because you had sort of people like you know alan mcgee with creation records who had started a fanzine and he'd had that little club in london didn't he the living room or the room yeah the yeah upstairs um and then you know yeah you mentioned postcards and there was 53rd and third records and then the pink label, which was a tiny label, really. But there was like, um, yeah, there was a lot. Yeah, of Rough Trade. I think the Smiths were on Rough Trade. They you, were. There was you, know, you know, Jeff Travis and these kind of more earnest, if you like, more intellectual people with a political conscience as well. I, I think it just became a, it began to relate back to real people again, where the New Romantics very quickly became you you looked up at the new romantics they kind of recreated their bowie idols where they wanted to to be seen to be the ones on stage lots of you know where the stars i kind of think it propagated a sort of a star system really yeah well they you know, wanted you to around, around, you use videos where nobody from accounts that they could ever afford to visit in their lives Yes. Well, I think uh, we had the John Taylor kind of, you know, that kind of vibe of wanting to be in a limousine or being on the tube with Paulie Yates, you know, in a, in a bed, being, mm -hmm. don't you, sort of having 
beautiful models, you know, and for geeky people like me, there was never ever going to be a yacht in Barbados. <laughs> a yacht in my backyard. <laughs> <laughs> there, might be a ding, there might be a rubber dinghy, but there was no yacht. There was no dream of a yacht. Or I know, think the indie know. thing bought 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 real people brought it back to real people again. That the Smiths seemed to echo their audience. And there was uh, there was people like Glass Records who'd also you know like was it Dave Barker who also had that label with people like the Jazz Butcher. And, yeah, um, I think in fact I've just been working with David J. Uh, Bass, yes. bass he's the new vocalist on my Dark Flowers new EP. Uh, Peter Murphy was on the first album. <laughs> Don't know how this is going down well in Bauhaus world. Um, but yeah. Yes, I, I, I can't remember where. Yeah, there's a big. Pat Fish uh, was the jazz busher. Yes, Pat Fish. I mean, there was, and then you had people like Momus, these very sort of. And, yeah, I was so intrigued by him. Yes. Really strange, kind of electro, weird, Bowie type of figure. Slightly perverted lyrics. Yeah, and then you had, you know, Lawrence from Denham and Felt. And. <laughs> You've got, I'd love to, I'm dying to see that documentary, which has never been, Lawrence from Belgravia, um, <laughs> great title pun that is, I really love it, but there's a, there's a great documentary, I'd love to see it, I, I, it was produced but it was never released, you've not been able to see it. Oh, that's a shame, did you, just as a brief one, did you see the, the one on Robert Lloyd and the Nightingales recently, King Robert? No, no. That just came out blow your mind it's it's kind of beyond anything you've ever imagined but again you know there's an artist who started with the prefects in the late 70s became the nightingales you know but then there was a bit where he he's sort of like said this is where i used to sleep you know in in the back of a garage kind of area you know sort of as a homeless person for a while <laughs> you know and it was just a you know it's just like this this kind of a person who just kept going and is has, um, still surviving. India is a difficult thing to define really it's a very although I think it really kind of rose as you say around 1983 properly and, and seen you became an indie band rather than a post-punk band or a goth band or you know it was there was a huge scene of yeah, well, cultural scene that developed. I didn't realise there was that whole neo psychedelic kind of world with people like the Hit, uh, Direct Hits, and um, Mood Six, and all these other bands. Which again, they that whole world slightly passed me by, as well as the goth scene. Apart from, I mean, obviously there was the Cure and the Cult and Sisters mm. of Mercy. Who I quite the Cure I like. Uh, you know, I, in the post one, well, I used to like the Yachts and Monochrome Set and bands like this. You know, the, the, who mine this more sort of wiry sonic aesthetic that I actually really liked. Um, well, it, the Yachts became, or one of the members, is it's immaterial, isn't he? Yes, yeah. But I remember their B-movies, John Graham used to love, he was such a great, he's he was quite politically aware, Graham, and he still is a staunch Labour supporter. And he was, he always had really good taste in, in the more political, like the Gang of Four, you know, it's through him that, I've got the, their first EP, the, the, that's enter, Entertainment, I think it was called, or whatever it's called. Um, and I love the Gang of Four, supported them at, at uh, the Days of Future Past Festival in Leeds. Uh, very powerful, um, very powerful band. Scary. 
scary individuals, I would imagine. So then, how yes. <laughs> well, I don't know what they're like now. I mean, we're all a bit sort of crocked, really. Aren't we? I think they're all dead, most of them. I know Dandy Gill's dead, um, the guitarist. He died recently, few, recently, yeah. Yeah. So what was your kind of path? Because then, because in a simplistic way, you know, for me, the indie world was kind of 83 to 87, which was the years of the Smiths. They broke up. Mm -hmm. Ecstasy comes along. There's kind of like suddenly the, yeah. the, the, the yeah. 16 to 18 year old wanted a different sound, didn't they? They wanted that kind of they were different to the 16 to 18 year olds before that, you know, and, and I think each, each generation wants their kind of. Billie Eilish or Taylor Swift. Yeah, yeah. I, I had this period of, of horror, the, the horror. I think we all have a horror period. And it was like the B-movie thing took me out of my working class town, showed me that, you know, gave us as a record deal, took us to tour far away places, then snatched it away fairly quickly. And I found myself going back to London in 1984 and living in horrible things with Steve from B-Movie, trying desperately to, to tag something else together and it not working. I thought, this is awful. This has got to be the end of it all. Um, I ended up tiling bathroom floors to my landlord because I couldn't even put, afford the 50p for the meter. So it's like, I can't keep giving you money for my own meter. You know, you, you have to work for me. And then I suddenly my old agent, Paul Boswell from the agency, Call and said, Look, Peter Murphy from Bauhaus is looking to put a live band together. Send him anything that you've got. And I got the audition for it, 1986. 1985, end of 1985, or 80, early 86. And um, I got the gig just promoting his first album, Should the World Fall to Part. That was the embryonic 100 men, actually, because we put together Pete Bonus, my mate, Eddie. Branch and Turl was drumming and I was playing guitar and Howard Hughes was his co-writer on Should the World Fail to Fall Apart was had been in the Associates and um, was now working with Peter and then Howard one day said to me he'd heard the B-movie album he said you you can write songs I'm leaving I don't I don't want to stay here with in the Peter Murphy setup and I was the I was the, the least the last one to be allowed to join the band I wasn't a very good musician but I could play a bit of keyboard some guitar and I was never told, it was always, yeah, we'll keep you on a bit longer, we'll keep you on a bit longer. And then I became very quickly Peter's co-writer because no one else in the band were really songwriters. Yes. And did you, I mean, because I did an interview with, with Alan White, who suddenly found himself in all these kind of rockabilly bands, who were another, you know. Well, Alan White used to work at Rockmaster's studio. Oh, right. And uh, he used to listen... We, we demoed, um, funny enough, yeah, because he, he was working at Rockmasters when I was writing with Peter Murphy because Peter was managed by the guy who owned Rockmasters and he, I think he was a T-boy at, at the studio. Right. He was a rockabilly guitarist. That's right. And then, you know, he, he sort of, yeah, the, again, it was a bit like that Ava Cherry. It was like, how did you get the gig with Morrissey? And it was yeah. Like, well, it was a bit like, well, Morrissey wanted a photo shoot and he said, look, I want some rockabilly people and it's like oh we've got this band you know they they're not gonna they're just gonna stand in the background and look a bit you know as, as Morrissey likes his mm. you know, um <laughs> trying to be you know looking a bit it like is. yes um slightly you know men with a flick knife but sort of you know sort of yeah a it has a penchant 
for a certain look. <laughs> Being really diplomatic there. So, you know, it's like, and then it's like, oh yeah, by the way, they can also play a bit of music as well. And it's a bit like, mm, okay. So it was kind of a weird way that you suddenly, and then you just wrote 90 songs with Morrissey. How did you, you know, it was like, God, that's an incredible gig. Or something. Yeah, Peter was, Peter Murphy was, turned out to, to be incredibly nice at first. I loved you know, he, he, I was the only one who lived in London as well. The rest of the hundred men didn't. They all, and so I would go around. His, his, he had a lovely apartment and a lovely wife, Behan. And he was like, "Look, we sh I, I need to do a follow-up album." I went to America with him to tour the "Should the World Fall, Fail to Fall Apart" album, and it was great fun. And I, I, I was back. So what basically that did? Peter Murphy focused on America, and we did so many American tours. I, I was. Uh, the, the whole ecstasy thing and house completely bypassed me. I was sharing a house with a guy who played in the Bolshoi, who supported us on tour and got me somewhere to live in London. And the whole thing, I, I, you know, everybody else in the house was getting into ecstasy and acid and acid house. And I just, I made a deliberate, absolutely deliberate thing. I didn't, I didn't want to do that. Everybody's coming back tripping and high. And I thought, right, I've been given a second chance with, with Murphy here. I'm allowed to be so creative. He said, just come to my house, write anything. He would lock me in his little attic with a four track and I'd make weird music of little marimbas and goth guitars. And it was just like, and I was getting paid a retainer from him and, and there was tours being lined up. And I totally admired him as a frontman. And I thought this you were working with people like Pete, um, is it Peter Bonas? Who, yeah, Pete Bonas was an amazing guitarist. Whose, whose CV is quite extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah, Pete's one of my best friends still. He's an old gypsy man. He lives. To, he's, he was brought brought up in a gypsy caravan with Jim Capaldi, Traffic Girl. You know, he was a legendary seventies guitar player. Um, and live, it was such a great band. Um, but you know, it was Peter Murphy. You weren't. It was never your deal. I had a yeah. slightly better deal because I was writing the songs with him. So um, did you? I mean, because at that stage, obviously. You know, if we were looking back, it's one thing. But at the time, he'd had the Bauhaus, where he'd obviously had to become this character and become a person that he might not have even recognised from the beginning. And yeah. have that drama, as, as every band does, they have that five years of being in the band and the drama. Normally, you know, what I found from this, these interviews is that, you know, like you have the 18-month you know, honeymoon, you get the sort of John Peel played, John Peel session, first album, all those little yeah. things in the bigger tours then the tricky second album and if any band ever tours america that seems to kind of finishes them off as well and the sort of the fact that everyone hates each other and there's no money is kind of enough to well it didn't for us because he went from selling like twenty thousand albums on should the world fail to part and us playing very small clubs to the second album love hysteria i, I actually wrote the three singles uh, all night long indigo eyes and there's another one for what it was uh, and that album then the follow that album then sold five times as many, so he'd sold a hundred thousand albums with with Love Hysteria, and we suddenly bumped up. We suddenly sold out two thousand seat of clubs, so there was a, a fair amount of money. You know, we did stay in. We did have the big touring buses, and the band were keen, and, and the band were all great mates. We all got on, and Peter was great at that point as well. It was it was it was great, and then Deep the, the next album, I wrote all of it with him. And Cuts You Up became a big hit for him. And yes. So what was the project? Because that's one of the great singles, isn't it? Let's face it. That's probably, for me, it's, you know, one of the great songs he's ever, you know, his vocal is incredible. Mm. And the song just is, it's, 
there's nothing wasted in that song, is there? It's just such a delight. From that moment you start hearing it, <laughs> you have to listen to the whole thing. Remember it? I, yeah, and I remember writing it on the guitar, on the acoustic guitar, just in my bed in Peckham, just the chord near the chords of. playing it and making a little demo for P at Rockmaster Studios where Alan White was creeping around as a T-boy there <laughs> and Simon Rogers coming in to produce the album and making this amazing album of seven songs and I just thought this album is because Pete were we had our difficulties later on we had a lot of co-writing issues of money and things like that so a lot of bands do but i always be eternally grateful for him because he gave me complete and utter freedom in what i wrote he would take anything i wrote from a synth line electro demo to an acoustic guitar demo to my iggy and the studios kind of rock demos to a more esoteric marimbas and string pads yeah. demo and he would work his kind of goth magic on it and he would take my smallest idea and make it a great or you would take a full backing track and add something amazing to it um and that was great and cut Shop did really well and we went when we, when we toured america with that album and deep started to edge its way into the top 40 we got screaming girls at the front and it was like it was like goth beatlemania <laughs> it was just and we started to stay in really nice hotels and da 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 but the end, the, the result was when we came back from that tour, Peter didn't, he sort of backed away from it a little bit. He, he disappeared to Turkey, married Bayan, and, and he said, I'm going away for two years. And, um, and then we did the, the next album, Holy Smoke. It was a horrible mismatch, wrong producer. It was actually Mike Thorne who produced B-Movie, who was in Wire, but it just didn't work for me sonically and the songs were all over the place and a little bit of this and a little bit, it was very very unfocused and then he sacked the band after that and kept me on and I wrote again I then went back and wrote all the music for Cascade and met yeah, Pascal Gabriel yeah. and that's but but it's interesting that the the role of the producer did he become Mike Thorne was his kind of uh, direction or energy was that just a difficult dynamic with the band yeah it wasn't a very good dynamic at all it was um i don't know i, I think he he had this synclavier system that i remember him having from b movie and soft cell and it was like oh don't worry everything's going to go through this fantastic machine and and the band was sort of sidelined in the writing they were they were bought i went to new york with peter to work with just mike thorne and then the band were bought in much later and it was like a wrong way round you know normally we work things up as the band and then all these extra toys and things come on after and and it was all very disjointed and it, it, Peter wasn't, I think the song, basically the root of it all was we didn't spend enough time on writing great songs. Yeah, but then you toured the album, did you sort of get the song? Diminishing Returns. Did the, that the, become? The, yeah, the big places we were playing on deep were suddenly halved and they were half as full or the gigs were downgraded and it was already, we thought, wow, that was a quick rise up. <laughs> oh, this is going down the other side of the hill. Yes. 
that is that is quite strange, isn't it? That and then when good. he sacked the band, who were my best friends, and he, he, he said, I can't keep them on any kind of retainer anymore, and I just didn't know what to do. I just had a young child, and I, I was kind of desperate to keep, have any sort of income, so they carried on paying me a little bit to write more songs for him. And I wrote all of Cascade, all the music I wrote on Cascade, all of it. I went to Spain with him and Pascal came in, Pascal Gabriel. And that's where my life changed again. Pascal Gabriel was, was at that time was fantastic. He was breath of fresh air. He was fun. He recognized what my contribution was and he was like, well, this is all wrong. You're playing everything and yet you're being treated like you're being treated less than the kind of doorman who, you know, and he was like, no, you have to get out of this situation. Yes. But there's, so a, just on that album, Cascade, there is um, the Scarlet thing in you. Can you remember that coming together? Cause I, I yeah, because I wrote Scarlet thing in you. Funnily enough, the... I wrote it while we were recording deep while we were recording um, deep right. years before that and I put it on a I set a huge four track system up in the wall hall and so this was two albums before cascade and I made a really comprehensive demo of it and it just got put on a shelf somewhere and it, oh, to me it still sounds unfinished it still sounds like an unfinished song oh, I saw you you saw me it's like it's like Never really, because I thought I, I suppose in a way I think musically it's fantastic. So um, that's the one thing that I've always it just has that kind of dynamic such energy, yes. such an energy in that song. And, it's and the drummer like a bit like, a, a bit like Johnny, some of Johnny Marl's stuff in the Smiths. It has that. Oh, actually, this is this kind of all the chords all sort of flowing. You know, same I, exactly that. That's my exact feeling when I wrote it. I thought. This has got a real, I love some of the chord changes in it and the riff, I thought, this starts and it flows all the way to the end yeah. really well. And then we got some Pascal, we got some great musicians in, we recorded it in Spain at Trevor Moraes' studio. Um, and the drummer, and Pete was, was away when we did that. He'd gone back to Turkey and we had such fun. <laughs> I think it comes out in the music. And Kevin Armstrong came, came and played guitar Right, he doubled up the riff, and and yeah, and um, we had Michael Brook come in and do some experimental guitar on the solo on the Scarlet Thing in You, who'd been you know recording with uh Eno and um, Eno's producer, you know, the Canadian guy Daniel Lenoir, uh, and all that sort of stuff. And then Peter came back and hated it. He's like, What the fuck are those drums? He's fucking clattering around all over the place, and then. <laughs> <laughs> Pascal said, "Well, I'm not changing it. It's gone. You know, the second position. So they, they, they stayed, and I think he grew to love it. Actually, right. just live, it was absolutely brilliant. Yes, God. So, did you tour that album at all? No, basically, uh, well, an off-the-record story was they were really treating me very badly. Peter and this crooked manager, uh, they reduced my publishing to twenty percent for writing all the music." And we're taking 80% for the lyrics. They pay me 100 quid a week, which they then said they were going to take back from any advance that I got. 
uh, he tried to steal some money, the manager did, and I only found out half my advance had been put in his own bank account, and he'd ripped the advance the sheet out from the publishing deal and substituted in a half amount. I got a young child. I had tried desperately hard to get my hands on this money that was due to me, and, and there was this tour lineup to promote that album. Um, and Pascal Gable at the time came round. He's like, Paul, you've got to get you out of this situation. He said, Look, Daniel Miller is a friend of mine. Why don't me and you put together an electro pop trio? We'll call it Peach or Neuronic. And I have some great studio. And he was really, and he gave me the keys to this amazing studio full of synths. He'd just come off the back of doing New Order and the Inspiral Carpets and he'd done Bomb the Bass and S-Express. That was all Pascal as well. And this new guy was a joy and uh, we became top mates. And he was saying, you have to leave Peter. Are you leaving Peter? I was like, no, I can't. I'm still getting me 100 quid a week and <laughs> promised I'd do this tour. And that's the only way I'm going to get my money out of them that they owe me. And in the end, we devised a plan. And I said to his Peter's manager, give me the money you owe me. And I was like, you're so, such a great person, I'll do the tour for free. And he went, oh, this guy's so stupid. You know, here's the money that I owe you anyway, which I wasn't going to give you. Now you'll do the tour for free. Then I rang them up and said, fuck off. Get somebody else to do the tour. Went to mute with Pascal Gaber. Walked in, saw Daniel Miller, who I loved, because he came to see B-Movie Play in 1982 when we supported, well, Fad Gadget supported us at a small festival. And Daniel, we sang, we, we played Daniel two tracks... And we sang, we didn't even have a singer, just me and Pascal, we sang our ideas for this big sort of Baccarat kind of 60s idea of a band that we had doing, but doing it all on synths. And Dan just said, love it. Here's a deal. Uh, called upstairs, got us two checks each for 15 grand each. Wow. And we walked out the office with a record deal that I don't think we ever signed. We never really signed the finished thing. And then um, Pascal was like, see, I told you. And I was like, what? So my life just spun on its axis immediately and I threw myself into this peach thing. And then we dropped the song. Our first single went into the film Sliding Doors and then went on to become a big American hit, the top 20 hit on my own was. And um, although it didn't do the same over here, and then Warner Chapels came knocking on my door and said, look, we, we want to sign you, we want to sign Pascal, we love the Peach thing, we, we love your Peter Murphy stuff, we think we, you and Pascal together could, we could, you could write songs for other people, you can... And then, of course, we get to the end of the Peach thing and we just, Pascal decides he doesn't like the singer. The singer and Lisa is a nightmare. The whole thing implodes after one album. <laughs> and I thought, fucking hell, yet again... <laughs> The third time, I'm not even 20 fucking seven yet. I mean, three, oh, I was actually a lot older than that at the point. I'd, I'd be 33. Um, but it's snatched away again. And what am I going to do now? And then I met Dido. And who was the secretary. I wrote four songs with her. And Here With Me went on to become her first single and No Angel went not. To, to go on her album and she sold 23 million <laughs> albums <laughs> and oh, um god that's yes the dido connection that bought me an immense an awful amount of money to buy a house and you know and to still remain signed to warner chapels today 25 years later 
I continued to write with Pascal, became a great friend. We wrote with Dot Allison and Shara Nelson and lot. And but then again, Pascal just suddenly turned around one day and said, "I, I, I want to work with with somebody else, Paul. I don't want to work with you anymore." Not in a nasty way. I think he was going through some personal stuff, and I was heading for a divorce and the whole. But but the point was. I kind of th- I'd thought, but uh, right, but almost forty. I think I found my feet a little bit. Yes, but were you um, on the Dido front when you sort of you know recorded that you know those singles? Did yes. you sort of have any idea what was going to happen? Did you think? No, no. My my publisher Mike Salt at the time, who became one of my best friends, did say when he heard "Here with Me," that's your career song, and I just laughed it off and went home, and. Um, and we wrote four or five songs, and I think the two of them were, were just as good. And that, but but I think Sister Bliss heard one of them, and that all of Rollo, all of Faithless by that time, we're trying to get their songs on the album as well. And it was all getting, hold on, this looks like it's going to be quite interesting. And luckily, I, getting two songs on that album was was great. It, yeah. it, it really seriously. And then I went to work with Kylie Minogue on a Fever album, with one we can't get you out of my head on, and we got two tracks on that album and those were the days where as you'd get paid as a songwriter not streaming but per cd sold so fever sold seven million albums so on those two albums i'd done 30 million albums life that was a bit of a turnaround wasn't it because i was uh, the guy from the the bluebells who you did that um young at heart young at heart which then they go to court, don't they, because of um, Bobby, uh, is it Valentino, with his uh, little fiddle play? Yeah, you got to be careful. you got to be careful. But he said that he, he's a bit of a, you know, a songwriter for hire. And I sort of said, you know, about the, the process of that. And he said that, you know, he, what he had in his mind, he's like, right, I've got to, you know, I've got to go and write this song. So he gives himself a deadline. Think, yeah, before I leave for the airport, I'll write the song. And then he think, well, when I'm going to the airport, I'll write the song. Then when I'm on the plane, I'll write the song. Then it's like, shit, I'm in the, I'm in the hope. I'm literally going into the studio. Sorry, just stop this phone ringing. Magnus, Magnus Fines calling from America. Let me to climb. That's Magnus, who I, who I, there's another story now. That's, Magnus was a, produced the Dot Allison single that I wrote with Pascal. A song called Close, Close Your Eyes, which became her first single for Arista. Um... But Magnus, that's when I first met Magnus, back then, in the night, when I wrote the title, maybe early, early 2000s. And that, he's, he's now become a, another musical inspiration, really. So that, uh, what, where were we? We were talking about the, the songwriter for Hire, yeah. yeah I yeah. slipped into that with, with Warners, for, again, with diminishing returns, but I enjoyed the process, and I still do. I wrote... Matt Cardle's single, It's Only Love. I wrote The Saturdays, Why Me, Why Now for their first album. I did Tina Arena song on a album, which went double platinum in this, in America. I just wrote with weird people, Emma Bunton and Jerry Halliwell and and just all, Sophie Alispector, who was lovely, and Will Young and all these people. And I just found, oh, man, this is not what you, this is not Brian Eno. <laughs> Yes. This, this needs a sea change. So I just started doing music for installations with sculptors. I met, I met a great guy at my daughter's school who was a, um, a, um, 
a curator, put on exhibitions in Italy and with some great painters and sculptors. And he was a real fucking crazy guy, lovely with three kids. But he'd just suddenly go, Paul, you should come to Italy tomorrow. I'm, and I just, I'd say, yeah, and I'd just go. And I met some fantastic people and um, I became, I, I never got any money for it, but I did a lot of um, installation work with galleries and painters. And I just thought, oh man, right, okay, I can do the songwriting thing provided I can do this as well. I right. found this balance of, and all of a sudden I found balance and I thought, be great, be thankful. I was, I was so panicked about money, anxiety, I think for a working class background as well. I was always permanently worried about, this is not a proper job. You're never mm. gonna have, you know, when do you get a proper job? Even after the Dido, my dad's like, oh yeah, but you need to get, when are you gonna get a job then? And all this like, oh, fucking hell, it's never <laughs> ending. It's never gonna end. <laughs> unless I end it, unless I reconcile something in my, in my mind, you know. Um, so I did, I, I just became extremely grateful for what I'd achieved. I'd had a long talk with myself and thought, look, you've, Jim Kerr is a personal friend. How, how cool is that? How cool would you be having this conversation with your 17 year old that you can pick up the phone? Because Jim is such a lovely guy. That came about as well by by me wanting to do a project called The Dark Flowers. Um, and I got guest vocalists based on a book by Sam Shepard, Motel Chronicles. And my manager at the time knew Jim Kerr's manager. And I said, well, I'd love to get Jim Kerr involved. And she said, well, this guy, I've got his name, lovely guy, his manager's Jim. So and Jim was just so open next to me. I got an email from him saying, oh man, I love the backing track. The guy passed it on to me. In fact, it's so good. It's so good for the minds. Do you want to write together? And I was like, next week he, he, he turns up, you know, he, he came down and he's in this tiny studio and he loved it. And we, I've got a song on the last Simple Minds album, Big Music, that right. did very well for them as well. Um, and my Dark Flowers little project signed to Lojinks, which is a great indie little label. Um, and it's a sort of alt country album, but with electronica. And I sat here and listened to read Sam Shepard's book, Motel Chronicles, which I was obsessed with. And I listened to an album called The Hired Hand by Bruce Langhorne, which was an instrumental album uh, from a film, a cowboy film, but it had all found sound and wind and out of tune, weird stuff. And I just, so seven years ago, I thought I'd, I'd love to combine the words from Motel Chronicles to this sort of music, but put a bit of another green world in there as well. Yes. Country and electronics and this prose. And then Jim heard it and he said, that quote, you and I sent every singer little quotes from the book and a backing track, and he came and did four songs on it. And um, I got, what I, all, I, all I ever wanted to do was get a mojo review for it. I thought, can I take my idea and in a year's time or two years, I'd get a great review in mojo. <laughs> I did. I got a four-star review. And Peter Murphy did a track on it, and Jim Kerr did three, and Dot Allison from Massive Attack did one, and Kate Havnevik, this gorgeous Norwegian electronic artist, did did a track, and Shelley Poole, who I love, was in Alicia's Attic, and has become a great mate of mine, and who also writes a lot for other people, and Helicopter Girl, who I'd been introduced to by Rob Dickens, and I produced her second album and her third album for her. Blimey. Yeah, I put this whole a... album together and uh, 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 eight different vocalists and Mojo, both Q Mojo and Rolling Stone gave it an amazing review. So I've finished the, the second album seven years later and 
because of COVID, Lojinx can't release it just yet. They're financially not in a good place. So they suggested, why don't you do an EP of covers? So I've done a murder ballads EP. And I've kept printing. Jim Kerr didn't do it, but he's got four songs on the new album. So he didn't want to overload. But I've got Gabriella Chilmi, who's got a voice so similar to Helicopter Girl. Helicopter Girl freaked out, went missing in action. She had a lot of issues. Um, but Gabriella just slipped in and she's... You know, Nothing Sweet About Me was a huge hit single for her, but she's got she's an incredibly dark lyricist. She's she's not that. She's she's so much more than that. She's a beautiful dark country singer and she looks beautiful and she she mines really great lyrics. And so Gabriella's did a cover of has done Delta Ray's Bottom of the River. David J, who I'd met via Peter Murphy, so I'm not going back to Peter for the Dark Flowers, because he, he, he caused me such a runaround for doing one track on one album, <laughs> asking for 10,000 quid. You know, I was like, mate, I said, album I'm doing in my bedroom. I've done seven albums with you for nothing. You know, we remain great friends, but you know the story why we fell out. <laughs> and you want $10,000? <laughs> so I met Dave and Dave is very agreeable I still yeah. love working with Peter but David was David's a different writer different style David's David collaborates in the old-fashioned way of collaboration Peter Murphy takes what you've done takes it away and makes it into something great right that's a different thing than a kind of sharing backwards and forwards of ideas yeah and I think David jumped on it straight away and he, he he wrote a track for the album for the second album called the stars standing which is he, he totally got the um the vibe of the motel chronicles which i don't think pete really got the pete just proved good some great vocals on the first of the first uh, album but david really got gets the americana aspect of it yeah did you and then lloyd cole of all people emailed me i was so pissed off about this he'd heard the first album and said are you doing a second? And I said, yeah. And I sent him a, and I started this really long, Lloyd Cole was another hero of mine. I remember in the mining village going into the local barbers and taking the picture of Lloyd Cole's album saying, I want that haircut like that. I want to look like Lloyd Cole. He's a huge fan of Lloyd Cole and the commotions. And I met him in a bar in Tokyo with the hundred men when we were out on one of our, and he was equally nice guy from a Northern guy from Derbyshire, where near close to where I'm from actually. And, um, and Lloyd Cole said he would love to do a track for the new Dark Flowers album. And I sent him a load of backing tracks and he loved one. And he said, I've got a great title called Salt Flats. And then communication just dwindled away. And he was like, oh, my studio's not working. And oh, this is, oh, this is, oh, I can't do that. I just, oh, I've lost, I've lost, you know, when you've lost the dress, when you've lost the dressing room. Yes. yes. And that moment had come, <clears throat> gone and I would have loved. And then David J said, I'm in, I'm in New York. I've just, Give me Lloyd Cole's email. And I did. And Dave said, oh, yeah, I went and met him in a bar. And we had a great time. We drank loads of beer and whiskey. And I thought, fucking hell, what am I? A personal dating agency. <laughs> you know, I get nothing out of it. <laughs> yes. yes um, but, yeah, so Catherine AD, known as the Anchoress, who is great. We just released an album with Bernard Butler from Suede. And she's the new indie darling. But Catherine sang on the first Dark Flowers album as well. And I got other gig joining Simple Minds. So she joined Simple Minds as a keyboard player and then promptly left last year. But there's a gorgeous duet with her and Jim called Indian Summer. 
And as the anchoress, she's getting a lot of support from Six Radio and Press, Guardian, The Telegraph. Uh, her new album uh, is great. It's really good. And Catherine has done a version of Tom Waits' Dead and Lovely. So I've got David J, Catherine A.D. as the anchoress, Gabriella Chilmy and the lovely Shelley Poole who has done um, uh, Joan Byers' Silver Dagger. Bloody hell, that's quite, that's quite, that's one amazing, because there's, is it um, a guy, is his name Martin Atkins, who's got various things, he's a drummer, he, he worked with ministry and bands like that, but he seems to have these amazing projects where he works with so many different people. Yeah. You're quite yeah. similar to that, aren't you? I, I chance my arm a lot. I, I, I use the Dido connection, the one-off hit that I had, which is actually pure luck. Anybody could have written those chords and, and got on that album. And, I'm, and Peter Murphy carries a hell of a lot of kudos. As Peter Murphy's career has continued, his legend has by far eclipsed his output in a strange way. You know, Trent Reznor loves him and, and you know, he, he, Peter, I love... I love hate relationship with him with fallout but i'll be eternally grateful to him and, and as a front man i've never worked with anybody who had the charisma that he had on stage so the peter murphy and the dido thing together often is an intriguing prospect for people to co-write with <laughs> yeah so, well i would imagine actually you, yeah, so, and, do you, and do you get approached much of you know by some random people as well um, not no, because I, I stopped. I stopped being managed by people, and I've took a very low profile at Warner Chapels, almost hiding amongst all those hundreds of other writers. Uh, and in order to, to to basically what happened as well was about eight years ago. I, again, my northern desire for security kicked in, and I took a job. I went to a university, to Solent University. I'd heard about that songwriting was actually becoming a university subject. So I arranged an interview with a guy, a great guy called Paul Rutter, who was head of music at Solent. And I said, look, this is what I've done. He's immediately, oh, come, come and meet me. So I said, I don't want a job. I don't want to work here. I don't want anything. Just want you, I just want to know about this idea of songwriting as an academic subject. Yes. And he, t he put me, he said, look, a friend of mine, Andy West, is running a Bath Spa's first ever MA songwriting. So I went, trundled down to Bath Spa. I met Andy, he's like, well, stay. And just so I stayed, I, I, I did a little talk in the class. They said, oh, come back next week. And I started doing that every week. <laughs> and then I was on the course. And I went back to Solon and Paul Rutt said, did you meet? And he said, yeah, I've done it for a year. It's like, bloody hell. Why didn't you do it here? I said, well, you didn't ask. So he said, come and do a lecture. So I did. And it went so well. I basically just talked about the people I'd worked with. Yeah. And then he said, uh, he, he left and said, look, I've got to get you here. Do you want a job? Just one day a week. Just come every Friday and run, do the songwriting units. And I've since grown them from like fifteen people to now. There's almost sixty. There's sixty people in my class now. And then Bim came. Bim heard about that and said, "Look, we, you know, we'd love to get you involved. We, we, we need lecturers, and you've got this great CV. This is fantastic. And now you've been teaching at Solent. Do you want to come and do it?" something for us and I so I now do one day a week at BIM one day a week at Solon have my dark flowers project I have my co-writes through friends that I know like Jim and people like that people that I, I respect and I, I love to work with. I try and get in touch with them and sometimes it works uh, Warners occasionally send new songwriters to me <laughs> so I occasionally get something from them that 
you know, that is great, a new yeah. young artist or something like that. And um, this thing with Magnus, a, a couple of years ago, I got back into it with Magnus Fines because Magnus produced a lot of stuff as well. And he's a total maverick figure. He's, he's a, so charismatic, drawn to him immediately. I always wanted to work with him. It's just such good fun. We have a we have we're a bit party animals ish, mm. and he lived out in L.A. and I thought, you know, I really, really need to get a bit of this L.A. vibe. So I rang Magnus about four years ago. I said, look, mate, I haven't spoke to you for years. What about we do? I'm thinking of a new musical project, something that crosses like Kraftwerk and and Daft Punk and maybe LCD Sound System. And he was like doing Death in Paradise and big big now scored a lot of films music for his brother's films and stuff and he was he, a magnus has enthusiasm for anything he's infectious he's like i am so into this deep machines <laughs> was born i flew over there spent a month there and we we last the last state of play we we had clem burke on drums and this amazing live band then we ditched that then we then magnus flew to jamaica and we got sly and robbie playing on two tracks now so it's this kind of dub electro crazy stuff that is we've yet to release anything but we are determined this year to put stuff out it's kicking it's it's the most darkest electro punk weird it's got a huge concept to it about the deep machine and um well, that's amazing because I did a, I interviewed Sly, Sly very recently because they've got a new album out. You know, he was in Jamaica and uh, and it was great because I used to go and see the Taxi Gang a lot. You know, when they right. did all the three R Taxi, those three R gigs with various different front men. You know, like now Magnus you know, also managed to get the sax player who plays on all their recordings to play on it as well. So, he, we, so we've got the Jamaican brass band, like a Jamaican funeral march is playing, and we've got Sly and Robbie drumming. Then we're rapping over it. We, I'm actually using my own vocals with Magnus, but with tons of electronica it's so i'll have to send you yes well that would be amazing but i did an interview with a woman called monica muir mona mona muir who was a german um from the 80s and she got really into doing sort of music for games she said that was such yeah, a big game that was a big a lot of people were earning a lot of money from that <clears throat> uh, i'm just going to text magnus about it saying what i'm doing because he's just yeah. Uh, uh, just let him know. Yeah. Yeah, let's send that. Ooh. Yeah. So so was that ever a world that you were sort of tempted in, in the world of, you know, making... You know? Uh, well, funnily enough, every, everything you ask, I've got a story. I, I was approached by a company called Commercial Music just after I'd stopped... Or no, just after I'd started working with Peter Murphy. And they mistakenly put an advert in Melody Maker when it should have gone in a trade paper. And it was musician for something needed. And I answered it. I was so desperate. And it was Paul, a guy called Paul Amanda and Charlie Nelson formed this company called Commercial Music. Paul and Amanda went on to form the Beatmasters. Right. Big hits with Betty Boo, who I then met Betty Boo and was going to write with Alice and Clarkson. And in the end, I started writing with Shelley Poole. I met two writers on the same day. Um, but, yeah, they I, I, I did this commercial for them for 
for whipped cream, strawberries and cream, and and chocolate shakes and cream for the milk marketing board, and it went huge. And my mum loved it, my dad loved it. It was on Channel Four, and I got paid a load of money for it. And it was in the cinema as well, so I go to the cinema and. And again, it was just fluke. I just came up with this riff in the studio and they, they thought, this guy's really good. Then, I, then they asked me to do another one. And I went back. It was in Water Street. And they, it's got this, I was on this Emacs and this kind of guy turned up and it was the advertising day. And he had the, he actually did have the big red rimmed glasses and the braces, like a real advertising cock. Yeah. And yeah. he starts going, oh no, you need to play it like this. And then Paul, one of the, Commercial music said, "What's wrong with you? You know this is serious. You're not taking this serious." I thought, "What the fucking hell, man? I just walked in your studio a month ago. I didn't want a... this." And I looked out the window and I saw the pub. And I went, "Oh," the... and he went, you're... "And you're not going to the pub. <laughs> Stay until you finish this." And at that point, I went, I'll "Tell you one thing, I am doing. I am fucking going to the pub right now. You can stick this fucking job, mate." <laughs> and that was the end of my commercial music career. <laughs> So I kind of came, saw, had a, a brief amount of sex, then realised, actually, you know, it was just a bit of fluke. A few things came together and it sounded right on the advert, but I'm not into getting my head down and doing this music to order. For people like him to, you know, executives turning up and saying, do this, do that. It's like, no, this this is a road to, this is the road to purgatory here. Yes, it was it was going to end in tears. Um, and what's it like with you know Shelley Paul, who was in Alicia's attic? Because obviously she had that experience of doing probably two albums. I can remember. Shelley is my best female friend. I was only talking to her last night, and I was a bit down with the whole um, COVID thing. And uh, because we, we were supposed to do a, a songwriting retreat together as mentors in the Scottish Highlands at Noydart. K-N-O-Y-D-A-R-T, the Noydart Songwriting Festival, with just the two of us. And I, another guy is doing it is a, an indie guy, Justin Curry from Delamitri, I think, was that was going to do one of them. And um, Boo Hewardine is doing one. Oh, Boo, yes. And uh, we were supposed to do it on my birthday, my 60th birthday, June the 17th, and it was cancelled due to COVID. We still, we still can't get the go-ahead for people to mix by June the 17th. I think that the English logistics is June the 21st. It might happen, but they still couldn't take the risk. So I was talking to Shelley about it last night. She was just like, look. And she went online and she booked a cottage in Scotland for us. I said, we're going anyway. Excellent. So, Shelley is, is absolutely wonderful. She's, a, she's, a, she's my favorite female songwriter. She's she's so left field in her approach still. She has a, an amazing alt, alt country band called Red Sky July. I, I, I met Shelley because I co-produced and co-wrote her first solo album, Hard Time for the Dreamers, here, which, and I loved it. And I thought, I love working with this girl so much. And then we started playing it live, so I was able to just get the guitar. And then her husband, Ali McElaney, is in Texas, the band Texas. So I got on with Ali really well as well. So the three of us were just such a great three people just sit and play and listen to folk and country. And it's just, you know, and she's a great songwriter for other people, Shelley. Her sister Karen did extremely well, embraced the whole commercial aspect and wrote a lot of Shapeshifters and Kylie. And now yeah. she does a ton of stuff for... for uh, K 
K-pop. She's a big cheese in K-pop, Karen Poole is. She is regularly flown over to South Korea and paid large amounts of money. And Shelley minds a, a more left-field path. She writes with a lot of alt-country artists. And we always write stuff. And the Dark Flowers thing, she was so natural for it. She's done three songs on the last album, three songs on the new. And we're doing another project. I've started another project on the North Sea, which is going to be an... Uh, oh, another thing I started. I started my own record label called Loki Records. Blimey, that's quite a brave thing to do, isn't it? Yeah, but it's, it's not a lot. But just to release the music that I did in installations and stuff. Right. And then I started to put the B-movie stuff out through it as well. Um, and I'm doing the Dark Flowers... Murder Bars EP through it as well. And I re-released Shelley's album, Hard Time for the Dreamers, re-released it last year through it. It doesn't sell anything, hardly anything, but it's so nice to have what you've always wanted. It's your own little label. It's just a website and distro kid, you know, and maybe I press up CDs. Um, but all these things are fantastic. Um, but it's still... It's still spinning plates, you know, trying to keep everything going. I don't know where it's going to end but the uni thing is fantastic for, for bringing in a little bit of a solid income the dido royalties and peter murphy royalties are, 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 are not the same but it's a relatively fallback yes you know you can also pay your mortgage and afford a tin of beans uh but you might not be able to go on holiday but yeah I, I don't mind um then i'll do some extra marking if you want to do that or you know <laughs> <laughs> so does it, is it, you know, because I remember sort of just as COVID hit last year, Hank Wangford had just brought his album out and he was like, he was really down. And I said, what's it like, you know, now that you've got this time that everyone's kind of wanted, you know, and then suddenly you've been given it and he's like, I'm not feeling good. I'm feeling a bit depressed. How's it been for you creatively? You know, I mean, terrible. Like... It, uh, realistically terrible because having all these projects on the go a lot of this, these ideas are what were percolating years ago and I thought Covid absolutely fantastic I don't have to go to Southampton I don't have to go into BIM I'm going to be studio bound I'm going to, I haven't even restrung my guitar in a year it's like my, I didn't I never really thought so stupid I never really thought of myself as creative I just always thought of myself as lucky Oh, you've been so lucky, you. I've been so lucky to... Uh, and mm, then I yeah. realised that actually you are... Oh, I am. I am quite a creative person. And I've only just realised it at nearly 60. And the COVID thing sucked the creativity out of me. And I don't know why, but I, I just couldn't write music. It's like, you, anybody can write music. Pick up your guitar. Yeah, do this. Could... Wasn't interested. And, and all the plans and you can finish this and that have gone it went out the window it's only in the last month that i thought you need to get this dark flowers thing out this ep and the minute i set a deadline and put it on spotify for march the 19th was when i thought you, you've got to kind of really start yeah. making videos start mixing things start doing this and now i'm feel, starting to feel it again i'm starting to feel totally creative again and um and i can't wait for the uni work to finish now in April, so I can. Yeah, it's kind of weird. Is it is it the case that you kind of miss actually meeting, like you know Peter Bonner or whoever, and just yeah. have to jam with and say let's have a yeah, 
all of that, all of that, all of that thing that you, you, you somehow think that you're so self-contained that everything comes from inside you, then you finally realise actually that's the myth that a lot of the creativity is, is, is by being around inspirational people. Even if you're just talking music, yeah. even if you're just sharing a joke, even if you're just playing each other songs, um, even if you go for a drink with somebody that's non-music related but they're musicians, you come back in a good mood. You've picked something up, you want to create. When you take all of that away and you're just left to your own devices, you suddenly realise you're not Prince and you're not 19. And mm. shit, you, no man is an island. Yeah. You know, there is that feeling that it's just boring. <laughs> <laughs> yes, just having something on the calendar that gets cancelled is quite hard down, actually, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And the uni thing sucks the life out of you as well, even though it pays, you know, the lesson plans that you have to do. This takes it back to what we first started about, the lesson plans and the planning and the actual the welfare of the students that you love, you know, organising additional one-to-ones for them because they're down and, and you, you you want to talk them through their assessment more. You want to, you want to say, look, I, I, look, Tuesday morning I'll do three hours of one-to-one for you. You, know, you think, well, that's your Tuesday of music gone. Yes. And um, then Bim going, oh, can you do auditions for us? The live auditions. For it's all on Zoom now. So we're not just going to do it on the Saturday where you turn up, come to Bim in Fulham, and then you go for a drink afterwards. It's all day sat in front of Zoom, Wednesdays, then Saturdays, then Fridays at Solon, then Mondays at Bim, Tuesday mornings at Bim. It's like first time in your life you really have overstretched your time. Yeah. And it makes me really angry. Makes me angry at myself and other people I have to bear the brunt of it. But it's been, it's actually, been, you know, financially, fucking hell, I have not suffered at all through the COVID thing. I've earned more money than I've ever earned by just taking on additional marking. I work for this thing called the Songwriting Academy. Because I'm at home and I've got Zoom, I think, well, you might as well do it. Oh, it's just, do it Friday, do it Friday night, do it Wednesday night, do it this yeah. night. And then, I'm not spending any money travelling. I've not gone out to LA and spent 3,000 quid on that. Uh, I've not bought any new equipment because no shops are open. <laughs> it's just like, you know, <laughs> earning money with nowhere to spend it. It's been a fucking godsend, really. Um, because I've saved up money for the first time ever. So when this is all over, I aim to, um, to okay. put my travelling shoes on and... Um, Get to Vegas. Yeah. Yes, I will be back out into Nevada to record more sound for the Dark Flowers. I'm going to have to push off because yes. I have to put some okay, food in. So, so just quick, just, okay, briefly, if you were, just as, and you almost answered it, really, if you were to, able to sort of, or could have told your 16 or 18 year old self, you know, some sort of information or, or words of wisdom that obviously you've now developed or, or gained over the decades, I mean, was there a few things that you'd have said, yeah, just look out for that, mate, or... Just remember to do that, even if you know you're not that keen on it. I would, I would, yeah, I would say uh, sometimes, please take it seriously. Everything isn't, you know, you, I've missed a lot of opportunities by either not taking it seriously, having that northern attitude, oh fuck it attitude. You know, sometimes I would say pay a, pay a little bit more attention to what's yeah. going on around you. Because there's a lot going on around you. And when you're young, you don't spot it. Yeah. Or you choose to ignore it. 
and, and there's good things going on around you and there's bad things going on around you so you know keep listening keep listening a little more yes well look i'll let you go but, but this has been amazing thank you ever so much paul for this if you have any more questions dave just just drop me an email or you, yeah. you, you say, i want to clear this up you want to do another quick one of these a 20 minute thing to just say look these are the points i want to clear if you want to do anything yeah. like that just pop your line i'm around i'm, I'm here you know <laughs> and i'll make a i'll make a playlist of of some of the newer material i'm doing yeah so have you got that on spotify or Bandcamp? Uh, no, that's released stuff. The Dark Flower stuff is on Spotify. Uh, the first album, Radioland, is on Spotify. Excellent. The latest B-movie releases, a couple of them are on Spotify. But the new track I'll send you that I've just finished, I just finished it today. It's a, it's a post-punk prog epic. <laughs> I played everything on it uh, because we haven't been able to use any of the other members of the band, so I'm really pleased with that. And I'll send you the, uh, the link to the Dark Flower's new EP. Oh, brilliant. Okay, well, look, I'll let you go, though. It's Sunday evening. But look, thank you ever so much, and take care. No, I'm going to have to jump on a bloody call to Magnus now in L.A., and he waffles on for ages. I, I want my fish and rice as well. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, take care. Thanks a lot. Okay, lovely to meet up. As I say, just drop me an email, anything you want to clear, clear up. clarify, whatever. Okay, no problem. take care. Right, Cheers. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. I'll see you soon. See you. Bye. And that was me in conversation with Paul Statham, finding out about life in music. It's an interesting world. Anyway, a massive thank you to Paul for giving me the time for that interview. This has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do C86 Show. It's all there. Keep it positive, though, and nice. And, um, yes, also, yeah, all these have been archived. You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. Have a great week. Stay safe. Thank you.